It used to be that when someone hit their mid-60s, retirement was expected. Automatic, big party, gold watch, and no plans other than leisurely lunches and maybe a little golf. Except I don't know anyone that's actually gotten a gold watch. When I left my last job, the only thing I got was a request to turn in my badge. But just as the gold watch has gone the way of the dinosaur, so has the idea of mandatory retirement. Many men and women are either at the peak of their careers or launching new careers in their 70s or even 80s, which brings me to today's amazing guest. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Jill Weinbanks may be known to you as the Watergate special prosecutor who famously cross-examined Rosemary Woods, President Nixon's secretary, about the 18 and a half minute gap in the Watergate tapes. She's now an MSNBC legal analyst, regularly appearing on TV, discussing the legal nuances of political events. She's the author of The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President, and Jill is one of the hosts of not one, but two hit podcasts, Sisters-in-Law and iGen Politics. But as much as I'm a political junkie, this isn't a political podcast, and we are not going to be talking about politics. So why did I invite Jill to be my guest? Because she's one of the most interesting people I know, author, TV personality, multiple careers in law, business, and not-for-profits. I'm going to ask her what it was like to be a woman attorney in a high-profile case at a time when law was a male-dominated and sexist profession, and how it was that she started a podcast in her 70s and at age 80 is busier than ever with multiple careers. My goal for our conversation is to find out her secret to staying relevant and purposeful, and also to ask her questions which no one has ever asked her before, including how hormones and hot flashes impacted her professionally. Hi, Jill. Hi, Lauren. It's very nice to see you. This is so much fun. I have really been looking forward to this. You know, you are such a role model for me. I mean, you're up there with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, seriously, always, always have been. And I'm just so tickled that you agreed to come on and, and chat with me about a lot of different things. Not so, stuff I normally talk about. And I can tell you that my hashtag sisters-in-law, one of them would be very uncomfortable. Barb McQuaid won't even read our bra ads. Isn't that funny? It's like when I do WGN Morning News and one of the anchors, all I have to do is mumble the word vagina. And she is not only rolling her eyes, but under the table. I can pretty much guarantee, in fact, I'm going to guarantee you that I am going to ask you questions that you have never been asked on any podcast. But but I do want to ask you a few things you have been asked before, just to kind of set the stage. I want to go back. I want to go back long before you became the TV personality that you are. And when I think in terms of you and what you've done and all the barriers you've broken and this male-dominated and almost sexist world, but but one of the statistics that jumped out at me when I was reading your bio is at the time when you became a lawyer, there were only 4% of attorneys that were women. 4%. That's like Nothing. And and I know when I started in my residency, it was like ridiculous, the number of really 
horrible, sexist things that I had to put up with on a daily basis, including, including my very first day of residency when I stepped in an elevator and an attending, the minute the door closed, thrust his tongue down my throat and said, I wanted to welcome you to your residency. And that was not even one of the worst things that happened. So how about you? When you first started as a young lawyer, did you ever have anything like that happen to you? And, and what'd you do? Well, if we want to use the whole podcast, I can go through story after story after story of rampant sexism. First of all, I went to law school because my undergraduate degree was journalism, and I was offered jobs on the woman's page. And I wanted to do real news, trials, foreign affairs. They don't even have women's pages anymore. But in those days, they had women's pages. And what kind of topics did they cover? Tea was served and Mrs. Smith poured. And that was not something that, I mean, it's it's fine. I wasn't, I was against it. I just didn't want to be part of it. I wanted to do hard news. So I went to law school thinking that an editor would take me more seriously if I was a lawyer. So you After, never planned on practicing law at that point. No, I did doing not plan it on practicing to, law. to make yourself no. more marketable as a journalist. Exactly. And The first year of law school is really hard if you want to be a lawyer, but if you don't want to be a lawyer, it's torture. So I asked for a leave of absence and I did get a job, a better job than I had ever been offered in journalism as assistant press and public relations director of the Assembly of Captive European Nations, which I, in writing my book, learned was a CIA front. I did not know that when I worked there. It was composed of the former presidents of the countries that the Soviet Union had absorbed, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, et cetera. I did a lot of lobbying for them, and I loved that part of it. And I thought, well, if I go back to law school, I'd be even better at persuasion and presenting my case. And also, I'm one of those people who grew up in an era where you have to finish whatever you start. And so I went back to law school, And somehow in the next two years, I decided I was pretty good at advocacy and that I could make a lot more money in law than I could as a lobbyist. And so I ended up practicing law to pay back my tuition. And I was greeted, by the way, my first day of law school by, what are you doing here? Someone is going to die in Vietnam because you took his rightful place in the class and you will never practice law anyway. That was my first day. what, What was your response? What did you say when that happened? Honestly believe I didn't respond. Later on, I developed responses, but a lot of this, remember, not only were there only 4%, my class was 5% female. If you think about 4% of practicing lawyers were women, of that 4%, almost zero were trial lawyers. They were mostly doing trusts and estates, family law stuff. So it was really odd to go into trial practice. During interviews, I was asked questions like, what kind of birth control do you use? No. Going to have absolutely, and it was not illegal. There was no EEOC. There was no women's movement. Miss Magazine hadn't started yet. There was nothing. And if you didn't answer those questions, you did not get the job. So you had to figure out ways to answer them. And okay, I was. I want to back up a second. At the time that you were applying for a job and getting questions like that, were you married or were you single? I was married. Because if you had been single, they probably wouldn't have asked you that. 
Oh, that's interesting. Maybe, but I was married. time, of course, yeah. if you're not married, why would you have sex, right? That's no, true. but it was also the idea that when you get married, you will get pregnant and then you will quit. Right. So that yes, had to exactly. be what they were thinking. Exactly. That is, except, of course, they didn't know my first husband. If they had known my first husband, they would have known I wasn't going to get pregnant. But that's a different story. <laughs> different story, which you have to read the book. We're going to get to that right. to find out about what happened with the first husband. Read the Watergate girl and you will see. And how, as a woman, I accepted that it was my fault that we weren't having sex, that I wasn't attractive, and that it was within my power to fix it, which, it, let me tell you, ladies, it is not. It is not your fault, and it's not in your power. Just don't even try. So it took me three years of therapy to come to accept <laughs> that it wasn't my fault and that I couldn't fix it. it that is a whole different story. first time I was on television was when I was general counsel of the army. Now talk about another male field. And, and I think every time you talk about one of your amazing positions, it should be prefaced was with, and I was the first woman to be yes. general counsel to the army. I was the I first was. Yeah, I, I was indeed. I'm on the Good Morning America. And David Hartman was the host then. And he had been a television star in a uh, an actor's role, not as a commentator or host. And I had had a crush on him. He played the, in The Doctors. And so I was really excited about meeting him. And we go through this whole episode about a tank, the M1 tank, which is now the, still the tank that's in use. And we do this whole thing about mean time between failure, how it would perform in desert, how it would perform in jungle. And then he says, so I have just one last question, Jill. Do you plan to have children? And again, this is now on national television. Live. And, um, I said, well, David, it's so interesting that you would ask because it shows how many options women now have. And I thought that was a pretty good answer and it shut them up. And that was the end of it. That was a question that my mother wouldn't have asked me because it was none of her business. And there I was on national television being put in, well, you're a woman, aren't you going to have children? So, I mean, it was... It was pretty terrible. When I started at the Department of Justice, I didn't get trials assigned as fast as the men. I had to confront my boss and say, how come? And his answer, because you're a girl and you'd be more vulnerable in a courtroom than you are in an appellate court. In an appellate court, you're just with the lawyers. In a trial court, I was in the organized crime section, you'll be with made members of the mob and you'd be more vulnerable than the men. And so I said, what didn't you notice about me when you hired me as a trial lawyer? I want a trial. And if I hadn't spoken up, I would have never gotten a trial. That's, you know, it, it, I finally had learned that you have to speak up for yourself. That's how it goes. But you have to speak up for yourself and you have to put yourself out there, which, which brings me to how you even ended up working on Watergate. I had been at Justice for five years um, and had a pretty good record, had a very good record. And my boss, who was my mentor and one of the people I admire most in the world, had gotten hired and had said to them, Jill would be a great addition to the office. And so they called me and asked me to come in for an interview. And I did. And I was offered a job on the spot. 
It's amazing that they did come to you, given the whole thing. We're not going to get into all the details because everyone has to read the book, The Watergate Girl, which I it's, it reads like a novel. It really does instead of... Uh, a, but it's all true. It's all true. It's all true. But the, the one of the things that jumped out at me when you were describing that interview is that you show up looking adorable, as you always, you know, always, in, but in a mini skirt. Yes. And, you know, with your blonde hair and a cute little shirt and all of that. And... I mean, when, did you think about what you were wearing? Did you think about, okay, I want to be taken seriously and maybe I should dress differently? Because I remember when I was getting my test for board certification, which was an in-person test, and I wore an outfit that looked like I was on my way to my grandmother's funeral from the 1900s or something, because <laughs> I just was so desperately wanted to be taken seriously. So what, what were you thinking when you picked out your outfit that day? Well, let me just say, first of all, there were no career departments in stores and miniskirts weren't the same as miniskirts today. They were a few inches above your knee. They were not. It was covering your your tush. It wasn't, you know. (laughs) Exactly. It it, it covered, I would say it was four inches above the knee, maybe definitely discreet. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, And it was only during Watergate that attention on how I dressed became a big issue. Again, sexist for sure. Nobody said Rick Benveniste today wearing a blue blazer and uh, khaki pants or today wearing a pinstripe suit. No, but they would say Jill Wine Volner was my name at the time. Jill Wine Volner today wearing a pink miniskirt suit questions so-and-so. So it was clearly sexist. And I had no alternatives. There was nowhere unless, I mean, I don't know what I would have done. Maybe had clothes custom made to be longer. It was a novelty. You know, that's why they were meant yeah, to I mean, I, it was sexist, but also the I, idea. I was the, yeah, I was the only woman. And also back then, I could not wear pants in court. My first trial after my thing with my boss saying, I want a trial, they sent me to Alaska in January. And it was as you could imagine, it was like 30 below easily and deep, deep, deep snow. And the jurors all wore flannel lined pants and huge, thick muckluck boots. I had to wear a skirt. So in fact, I guess I was more vulnerable, but it was only to the weather. I'm just so, thinking about the fact that you finally get a trial and they send you to Alaska. Yeah, well, I mean, Nothing against Alaska for our Alaskan visitors, but it's, you know, really far and cold. It was quite beautiful, but it was, it was... And I think that was actually part of his saying, oh, okay, let's send her to Alaska. Maybe, you know, but I have to say, once I did well in Alaska, I got a second case in Boston. And after that one, I was just on the regular trial schedule. So by the time you became a Watergate prosecutor, did you feel like you were taken seriously? Did you struggle at all with such a high profile case that was so in the media? Well, there are several answers to that. One is I took very seriously that if I failed, I was dooming a lot of other women because I was the only one. And it's sort of like being the older sister. If you do something wrong, your parents punish your younger sister. And so I took that seriously. And it's more than that. It's more than that, Joe. It's, 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 you know, kind of like when we hear about someone who's of a certain ethnicity or this or that, and if they fail and that not only failed on their own behalf, but they failed on the behalf of all the other people that identify the same. And as women, we have always been in that camp of certainly as a young doctor, 
I felt very strongly that I had to work harder than the guy doctors in order to be regarded in the same way. I that is exactly true, and that's it. it that's exactly what I was trying to say. You said it very well. It was a burden that I carried and was cognizant of that I had to work hard to make sure that I wasn't the last. I might be the first, but my goal was to make sure I wasn't the last. So that was true. But the two other trial lawyers, um, Jim Neal and Richard Benvenista, very much accepted me and treated me equally. And um, my first day on the job, um, Jim Neal came to my defense when George Frampton, who was a junior lawyer, and Jim and I were interviewing the number two most important witness in our case, Jeb Magruder, and his lawyer was there. And Jim said, would you like coffee? And they both immediately turned to face me and said, I'll take mine black. And George got up to get the coffee. And Jim said, not very smart, insulting the person who's now responsible for negotiating your plea deal. And so that was that sort of put them in their place. Yeah. Um, and, and George was proper in getting up. He was the junior person in the room. So, but it was still the assumption that if I was the woman, I was the secretary. I was the one who would get the coffee. Well, everyone Uh, always thought I was the social worker. And (laughs) I would say, why? And they say, well, because you dress so nice and social workers always dress nice. Weird logic, but not true. Not true. I felt very seriously taken. Now, were there acts of blatant discrimination? Judge Sirica interrupted, you mentioned my cross-examination of Rosemary Woods. And it was pretty tense. And she was being accused basically of obstruction of justice, leading 18 and a half minutes of a key piece of evidence, a tape recording. And at one point he said, now, ladies, we have enough trouble in the courtroom without two women fighting. Now, this was not a fight. This was very serious cross-examination and very appropriate. What was worse was that was in the tape hearing during the trial. I was cross-examining one of the defendants and the re- that one, I was selected to cross-examine him on the grounds that if I could get him to show his true personality, he was known as a very nasty hothead. And if I could get him to yell at me, the jury would hate him. If he yelled at Jim or Rick, no one would care. A man yells at a man, no big deal. A man yells at a woman, shame on him. Particularly if you can make the woman cry. That would be- well, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think I could do that. But yeah. um, it, we decided that it was worth the risk that if I got him to do it, it was an advantage. If I didn't, it was no loss. So I very quickly got him shouting, at which point Judge Sirica said, now, Mr. Mardian, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? His lawyer jumped up saying, recess, Your Honor, recess. And every lawyer in the courtroom, every defense lawyer ran up to him saying, you are killing yourself. The jury hates you. You have to control yourself. So when we came back, he was much better controlled. But I think the jury had already seen who he was. And um his lawyer says the only reason he was convicted was because I cross-examined him. Of course, there was the evidence. I, there I was the say. evidence, not to mention the cross-examination there that was had nothing evidence, to do with, yeah, um, with your gender. It was uh, the exactly, way you cross-examined exactly. him. I mean, there was sexism. I think I was taken very seriously. When I became general counsel of the Army, a whole new environment. What's interesting is I really believe that the generals think that lawyers have a knowledge and language that's different than theirs. 
if you give good advice, people start coming to you to ask for advice. At that point, I was separated from my first husband and I kept it a secret because the wives of generals are very important in their careers. And I didn't want to complicate things by being a single woman. I made excuses because there are a lot of social events. Oh, my husband's working late tonight. Oh, my husband's out of town. Oh, my husband's sick. I just made up excuses for why I was alone. It was only when I felt fully accepted as the general counsel that I admitted, you know, because at some point you want to have an escort for these events. And so I finally, you know, admitted that I was separated. And by then I was accepted. So it was not a problem. It was fine. Uh, and made my life a lot easier. But I mean, there are accommodations throughout our lives as women in a man's world that we make. I never try to dress like a man. I never try to cross-examine like, I mean, Rick and Jim were fantastic cross-examiners. And I used to think that was the men's style, but I was quieter, more organized. I would build up fact after fact after fact. And it was only many years later when I became a partner at Jenner and Block and was working with Tom Sullivan, who had been the U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Illinois, Chicago, and was with him on a case that I realized it isn't a man-woman thing because Tom Sullivan had the same quiet demeanor that I had. And I suddenly went, oh, it's a legitimate way to be. But I always thought, oh, Jim and Rick are so clever and so bold. That's how I'd like to be. But it's not me. And a jury spots a phony in a second. So I couldn't pretend to be this dramatic persona that I wasn't. No, but and, your point is well taken. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that you no. were a woman. This was just the particular style that that right. was authentic for you and that and that worked for you. I just didn't know any other women lawyers at the time. Now, of course, you know, sisters-in-law are all women lawyers. Um, much younger than I am, 20 to 30 years younger than me. They grew up in a different world where there were a lot of women. Half their class was probably female. Right, they didn't have to establish themselves as being a serious attorney. They were taken seriously from the get-go. I want to back up for one second before we get to the podcast. The, The title of your book is The Watergate Girl. Why not The Watergate Woman? Well, because when that title was proposed and I said, not on a book with my name on it, my editor said, what captures the era better than that? And the book is basically only the Watergate era. It has an epilogue that takes you to the election of Donald Trump. So there's one chapter that covers like 40 years and the rest of the book is a year and a half. So you can imagine the detail of the first part versus the second. I immediately responded, oh my God, you're right. Remember what I said when I went to my boss to say, how come I'm not getting a trial? And he said, because you're a girl. Yeah. Girl captured the era. We were called girl. We weren't called women. Because the book is not only about justice prevailing and about bipartisanship existing and controlling, but it is also a picture of what it was like to be a woman in the 70s. So I felt like Watergate Girl, I'm totally comfortable with that title now and think that it is the best title I could have possibly thought of. It captured the time. And the thing that's so wonderful about the book, other than the the politics and the history, 
is, as you said, capturing the moment in time in terms of the role of women societally and also your personal relationships. You talk about your first sexless, loveless marriage and then what happened after that. So it, it's it's such a good read. I, I want to skip a few years here and talk about the last decade because you started to host these podcasts when you were in your 70s. I, Jen, came first and then Sisters-in-Law second. Talk a little bit about what you were doing at that point in your life. And did you think you were kind of done, for lack of a better word, in terms of having a career and having purpose? And and how did the podcast happen? And how did all of that come about? Well, first of all, I re-met my high school boyfriend after I was separated from husband number one. And we now are married for 43, almost 44 years. And it is definitely not a loveless, sexless marriage. It is a very good and healthy marriage. I took a job as head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools. I had to move to the city, but my husband and my dog, my beloved Brisby, stayed in our home in Evanston. I did it for five years. And at the end of five years, I thought, number one, I'm 65 which is a normal retirement age. Number two, I've done it for five years and I've accomplished what I really thought I could. And I don't want to keep living downtown. I really want to move back home. And that was despite a very long international business career where I was out of the country for prolonged periods of time. But I always had only one home and it's different when you don't have one home. So I thought, okay, 65, I'm retiring. But... I can't just sit and do nothing. I started doing some consulting and with a very dear friend, and we had a lot of fun. I guess at that point, I also decided to start writing a book that kept me busy. So you started writing The Watergate Girl when you were in your 60s. Yeah, late 60s. So I was working on that to keep busy. I was doing uh, the teeny bit of consulting. While I was writing it, I applied for and got into Ragdale, which is an artist community where you go and you have a residence for a minimum of three weeks. Some people stay four or five, but mostly dying to go there. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a great experience. And I was lucky enough to get in. I met a woman named Rita Dragonette, a fabulous woman who, after the residency, called me and said, I just read about a course. And this is now 2017. So Trump had already been elected and inaugurated. And she said, I just read an, about a course in how to write an op-ed. And I bet you have stuff to say. Um, I thought, that that's pretty interesting. So at first I looked at it and it was a Sunday from eight to five. And I thought, I'm, I'm not giving up a Sunday for that. And my husband said, oh my God, it's such a good idea. You should do it. So I did. And that was on a Sunday. On Tuesday, James Comey got fired. And I thought to myself, well, you just took this course. Why don't you put it to use? So I wrote an op-ed. It got published. I was with dear friends on the summer weekend in rural Texas. When it came out, my phone started ringing off the hook with television stations saying, we'd love you to come on and talk about this op-ed. And I said, I can't. I'm in rural Texas. I can't. They said, well, how about on Monday when you're back? I said, fine. So on Monday, I did my first television since David Hartman asked me that horrible question. Mm -hmm. The next thing I knew, I was appearing on every network. And then NBC said, we don't want you anywhere else except on us. So we're going to sign and pay you. 
So I signed with them and that was in 2017. And now here it is, you know, 2023, and I'm still doing it. I was already well past the age for starting a television career. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm now 80 and I'm still have a television career. So it's more pretty- than a television career. I mean, you are exploding. You are everywhere. And then not to mention the podcasts. I mean, talk podcasts about that because podcasts yeah. didn't even exist at the time when when you retired, right? Now you're, you know, got two. I didn't even podcasts. know what a podcast was when my my iGen politics partner was. I met him when he was 17. He had just graduated high school. We were both running as Biden delegates, and it was COVID, so we didn't meet. We he he had direct messaged me on Twitter, and then we started exchanging emails. Finally, in the summertime, we met at an outdoor place wearing masks, and he suggested a podcast. And I had to say, I don't know what a podcast is. We started doing it. Now we have a producer, and it's now professional. And after that, three other MSNBC legal analysts, we got together and said we should do a podcast called Hashtag Sisters in Law. It's been so much fun and so challenging. It really keeps my brain at the top game it could possibly be because i mean they're all still in their at the most in their 60s kim just turned 50 and they're all full-time employed so they as part of their day jobs have to stay current with legal issues i could not read another case for the rest of my life but i have to one of the things that just occurred to me is that the topics i talk about are Evergreen, you know, hot flashes are hot flashes. Hot flashes don't really change. Vaginal dryness, it is what it is. I have to say vaginal dryness at least once in every episode. I hope you appreciate that. So, and I've gotten that out of the way. But your stuff, it's like, whoa, you're about to go on air and then everything changes. You're about to do your podcast and everything changes. And one of the things you told me is that when you tape a podcast, it airs generally the next day. Now, I know you're not doing your own producing and editing, but still, not only are you doing cutting edge news that's changing every 30 seconds, but then it's got to immediately air so that it's current. I mean, that's a whole different level of podcasting. It, it is indeed. I can't just read the newspaper or watch television to get my news. When somebody gets indicted, I have to read the indictment. I don't read a sentence that says Judge Chutkin just issued a gag order. I have to read the gag order and her language. When the Supreme Court says they're taking up Mifeprestone, I have to know more than that. I have to right. read what, what the possible consequences mm-hmm. are. You know, these are all things that I have to find time to read in depth and understand. But you know what, Joel, it's more than time. And one of the recurrent themes in in my podcast and about healthy aging and menopause is that when we look at women and men also who age well, when I say age well, who continue to be youthful and productive and think clearly, it's people that keep themselves productive and who are doing and being physically active. And this is a podcast so people can't see you, but of course they see you on TV and you look easily 25, 30 years younger than you are. And and your mind is is sharp, sharper than most 20 year olds. And some of that is just who you are in genetics. But I don't think that a lot of this is the fact that you have had a lifetime of being challenged intellectually and being productive. I think it has, and that I continue to be. 
And my best friends are all 10 years younger than I am. And I have to keep up with them physically and mentally because they're extraordinary people who have always been extraordinary. But again, they're 10 years younger. And I keep saying, okay, wait till your bones start feeling like my bones and my joints. Um, I can predict in 10 years, this is how you're going to feel. Well, I've got you, your friends are even younger than that, because one of the things that we did not mention, I probably should have at the beginning is that we're friends. We've been friends for yes, a long time, which yes. is how I got someone as famous and amazing as you to be on my podcast. But so I know you have a lot of younger friends and my mom, who was very youthful and who was wonderful in every way. But one of the things that she said to me from an, from early on was it's important that you spend your time among younger people and have younger friends, not just because they'll have a different point of view and they'll keep you youthful, but also because if you live a long time, you're going to be out of friends because they're all going to start to oh die. Oh my God. Oh, she was right though. My mother was very yes. wise. And and there is something to be said for that. I don't know if your mother ever gave you that kind of advice, but I even look at the facts that you're, that you're doing a podcast with someone who is decades younger than you and now how that has to change your point of view and inform your point of view. While we're on the topic of, of mothers, I just brought that up. And because this is a menopause podcast, and I did promise that I was going to ask you questions you have never, ever, ever, ever been asked before. <laughs> I'm going to start with, did your mother tell you anything about menopause and what to expect and when it might happen? No. My mother never spoke to me about anything, whether it was starting menstruation, whether it was menopause, whether it was my first marriage, you know, my the night of my wedding. It just was not something that was brought up. I didn't have any friends at the time who were going through menopause, so I didn't have any peers to instruct me. All I had was my uh, gynecologist. And that point in your life when you started to have symptoms like hot flashes or sleep issues, which one of your many, many careers were you in? <laughs> I was actually doing international business development for Motorola and was overseas a lot and doing work that required acute mental attention. God, okay, let's back up you there. Cannot, yeah, you cannot lose attention to the details for even a second. And I remember being in China negotiating with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and sitting there and suddenly feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to sweat right through my blouse. They must see my face turning red. Like your first experience with a hot flash or is this something that had been happening and then this was just an ill-timed hot flash? It was just an ill-timed hot flash. I had had some. I can't remember at what point I finally said to the doctor, I have to control this. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy over taking hormones. And so I was avoiding it. But at some point she said, look, it's ruining your life. If it was just for no reason at all, I would say, don't take them, but this can control your symptoms. It was a forward thinking doctor to, you know, to support that and to appreciate the fact that, that you had a real job and maybe it's because she had a real job. You know, yes. I think the, the first ones to line up and take hormone therapy were, have always been physicians and surgeons and people that cannot be compromised because right. of hot flashes and not sleeping. And certainly you were in that category. Are hormones now considered okay or not yes. okay? Yes. You haven't been listening to my podcast, Jill. Mm, yes. Sorry. Everyone should be taking hormone therapy. And you know, when you stop, when you die. Yes. Really? 
Yeah. How long would you guess that you suffered with hot flashes and, and did you have insomnia before you actually started hormone therapy? I never had insomnia. I would say hot flashes was the worst experience. There was one time after this when I was working at Maytag. So it went on for a while where I had a sudden episode of bleeding. Yeah. And I was remember this distinctly because I was wearing a white suit. Of course you were. Uh, and not a and, tampon in sight because you were not, done. And none in the women's bathroom at the headquarters of Maytag. Um, Maytag and then I had to call my doctor and say, this is what's happening. And she said, you must go lie down and lift, keep your legs up and that take lovely advice, which was meaningless, but okay. No, no, I, I did make an excuse and I left and I went to my hotel because this was, I was in Newton, Iowa at the time. Oh, and she said, take a cab. And I said, I'm in Newton, Iowa. There are no taxis. She said, you have to come back and I have to see you. I said, well, I'll have to drive myself to Des Moines and then fly. And she was like, no, you have to take, I, there's no cab. The only limo in town is the hearse. And I don't think I can rent the hearse. I had a DNC and was fine after that. But, you know, it's just one of those things that happens when you're out of town in a teeny town where I certainly wasn't going to go see a well, doctor. My, my, my joke that I always make is that most women that get unexpected bleeding, they're usually getting on a plane wearing white with no tampons for an international flight. You know, that's when it happens. And yours is kind of the equivalent of that. It was, it, it was, that was, I mean, I will never forget that wearing white. Oh my God. Um, and, you know, going in and taking toilet paper and wadding it up and wrapping it up. And, oh, God, it was horrendous. Did you um, have brain fog when you were having the hot flash stuff or not? I did. I was so fogged that I didn't know I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like I performed at my normal level. I mean, there would be a momentary, oh, my God, I'm hot. But, yeah, I I don't feel like I screwed up any deals during the... Oh, I'm sure you did. But, you know, it's so interesting because we do spend a lot of time talking about the impact of perimenopause and menopause in the workplace in terms of things like sleep deprivation and cognitive function and even the embarrassment of having hot flashes in a meeting and that there's good data to show that women turn down all kinds of advancements and opportunities. They quit their jobs. There's a lot of mistakes made. And that's why I wanted to talk about it with you because for someone who is as high functioning as you, it had to have some impact, but I think you were so in the mode of overcoming whatever came your way that you probably just powered through it like you've powered through everything else in your life. I I did, and I, I do hope at least that today where I wouldn't be the only woman in the room, that there would be someone else who would be supportive and who would not leave me feeling like, oh my God, I'm in this by myself. Um, I wish I could say that was the case, but sadly, what we know is that it's not. That too often women who are really suffering and struggling with with menopause symptoms, not only are they the only ones in the room, but more often than not, their boss might be a 30-year-old guy who certainly has no clue. And there are a number of initiatives now to get some education in the workplace because to the point we've been making for the last hour is that women are still productive and working and at the top of their game in their 50s, 60s, 
And many women, you were not one of them, continue to have symptoms even into their 70s and 80s. Really? So this is something that, that we need to pay attention to. And, and at the time, I think, again, you probably just powered through it, but it may well have had a bigger impact than even you realized at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not to yeah. mention you were blindsided that no one ever talked to about it. Yeah. It, it was sort of like what's happening. And then you have to sort of do an educational session for yourself. And not wear colors that are going to show the sweat. <laughs> I always say- My only red gym, dresses. Well, you know you know the women when you go to the gym who have problems with incontinence because they only wear black leggings. You know the women that are <laughs> having hot flashes and sweating under their armpits because they're wearing black shirts. Having said that, I do wear a lot of black just because I like black. So you can't always assume that. What's your next chapter? Oh, God. Well, I mean, you're still in the middle of this one. You're still. I'm still. I'm still I mean, the, the podcasts are very time consuming. Tell me um, about it. <laughs> the sisters-in-law have done a live tour and are considering doing another live tour. I am considering writing a children's book and a young adult book. The children's book would be based on the many careers I've had because we've only touched on a few of them. And on the sisters-in-law, there's always this, sometimes something I'll say, well, when I was da 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 they'll go, wait a minute, I didn't know you did that. Well, I made and, a list, which I'm not going to go through, but I think oh we had about 15 like major, major positions of which, and I'm not exaggerating, I think 12 out of the 15 or 16 start with the first woman to, you know, yes. fill in the blank. And they're not all, it's not like I went from being a junior lawyer to a senior lawyer to a partner. I went from being a prosecutor to being in private practice to being the head of the American Bar Association, which is a totally business management role, to being the deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois, to being a corporate executive, to and being the a television. And the Maytag years and the working in Japan right. and Russia. And oh my God, you could you, you should so write it's, like 12 books. Yeah. So it's really different careers. So the book for children would be to show, because I grew up with Nancy Drew and Sherry Ames, student nurse. And I would have loved to have had a book that said, here's what you could be. Here, yeah. I've done it, so could you. And introduce you to careers in law, in business, in television, uh, in not-for-profits. I think there's a lot of different opportunities that I would like little children to know are open to them. And so that's one thought. And Brisby, who joined us briefly, would be a character in the book who would, at the end, distill down, here's what you need to know about this thing. Um, and there would be stickers at the back that are my pins, because they have taken on a life of their own. Your pins, yeah, because that's the yeah. book I think you should be writing. Yeah. Is, is the pins. Pins. And in fact, I want to mention, because this is a podcast and people can't see, and those of you who follow Jill know that there's always an amazing pin, which is representative of what's going on in current events. This is the first time I've seen you without a pin. And it's I know that- I got in so late, I had to get on, but I was going to wear, you gave me a uterus. Oh, the uterus pin, that? that's right, yes. with the pearl ovaries. Yes, I was Very going to special. put that pin, exactly. 
I, you know, I forgot about that pin. I'm wearing a pin today to channel my inner Jill. This was my mother's. My mother's the other side. Oh, that's beautiful. I don't wear pins as often as you do, but I. Very nice. I thought, well, I'm interviewing Jill. I should put a pin on. That'll get me in the mood. I wondered about that. I saw it and I went, oh, how nice. Yeah, I do have some. I've always worn pins. I wore pins in grade school and in high school and in college and in law school. I wore, they were just decorative accessories. They weren't messages. Now I only wear them if they're messages. messages. All right. And so you're going to do the book on pins and I want to be sure that the pins, pen young adult, the young adult book would be a cleaned up version of my memoir um, for, you know, a 16, 12 to 16, 17 year old category. Um, the sisters-in-law have talked about doing a book on democracy, but we haven't been able to distill it down to something that we're ready to do. But I hope another book is in my future. Well, I, I think and there's I a lot in your travel is in my future because I love travel. Yeah. Well, take me with, take me with. All right. So I have one final question for you. Yes. Did I accomplish my goal and ask you questions that no one else has ever asked you before? Well, and you made me say words that I never thought I would say. Um, that's yes, you definitely accomplished your goal for sure. Is there anything you would like to share before we say goodbye? No, because I think the whole point was stay active, stay involved. And whether that is volunteering or a paid thing doesn't matter. It's the involvement that matters. All right. We're going to we're going to close this up because you and I have been known to chat for hours. Thank you so much for taking the time and for talking about things you don't ordinarily talk about, because this is very meaningful to women who, quite frankly, are trying to figure out their next chapter and if they are still purposeful and the fact that they are no longer in their original role, whatever that is, whether it's mother, wife, attorney, that there's always something new and something wonderful you can do. And and the thing to keep in mind is be creative in what your past experience allows you to do in the future. When I decided to leave law and become a corporate executive, it took me a year to get a job offer because everybody kept offering me jobs as general counsel of the company. And I didn't want to do that. I kept revising my resume to stress my management responsibilities, not my legal cases. They didn't care that I tried the Watergate case. That has nothing to do with anything. So there is a way to see the skills that you have acquired in different jobs to start a whole new career. Well, that's exactly it, to take your skill set. And I think sometimes people forget that they do have unique skills that can be applied in multiple ways. What happens, particularly when people are retiring or expected to retire, is people are made to feel as if they're no longer useful and right. if they no longer have anything to offer and nothing could be further than the truth. Right. Exactly. Good way to end. So, thank you. Thanks for joining me. You'll find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. Go to drstriker.com to sign up for my free newsletter and follow Francie as she navigates her way through midlife, menopause, and beyond. Music.